It's Palm Sunday, it is 2011, and uh, our message this morning is called With It, W-H-I-P-I-T. I have been told uh, this morning that that has lots of meanings in a more modern sense, but if you could stretch back all the way to 1980 and a group called Evo, uh, this was the dawn of MTV and uh, guys that are around my age were teenage boys glued uh, to music television and one of the few groups that had a video on in, in 1980 was Devo and the song basically was about uh, not procrastinating, solving problems, doing it immediately. People read all kind of things into it. Uh, the leader of the group um, said that it was a protest against Jimmy Carter's administration. He said that he looked out and saw an Iran uh, hostage crisis, he saw an energy crisis, he saw the Three Mile Island thing that was happening, he saw the Soviets invade Afghanistan and Mount St. Helens erupted, and he felt like the Carter presidency was inept and weak and he uh, was trying to make a political statement. I don't think he achieved his goal. Uh, I think his message was lost on his audience, to be honest with you. Uh, having said that, I saw similarities between uh, the late 70s and early 80s and, and the time period we're in now, and I'll let you connect those dots. And I began thinking about our king and the way that he addresses problems. He doesn't just talk about them. He doesn't pass the buck. Our king comes in displays serious leadership because he's the ultimate of all authority. And then he does whatever it takes to bring correction in that area. Can you say amen to that? Has anybody been on the other end of a whatever it takes to correct a, a situation? Well, I couldn't believe the extent to which he did that. Uh, and we'll cover that in the Word. He literally makes a whip out of cords. But in your brochure, I'm not brochure, your bulletin, whatever we call those these days, I printed Psalm 110. Uh, when you read Psalm 110, hopefully when Mr. Fred and Ms. Suzanne gave you the, uh, the bulletin, did it seem familiar to you? Did anybody pick this psalm up and go, golly, I didn't know that was in the Bible? Good, we got no hands raising on that. Is that because y'all are asleep or because you, you, you're familiar with the psalm? Familiar. This is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. The second most quoted psalm is 118, the great Hillel. The third most quoted psalm is Psalm 69, which we'll show you later in the Bible. But Psalm 110 is really a perfect psalm. In English, it has exactly seven verses to it. In Hebrew, it breaks down into two halves. Uh, verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 7 are the two halves. And it's more like poetry. And one describes a great king, and the other describes a great priest. And the mystery found in Jesus is the king and the priest are the same person. Y'all heard this before? Jesus the great king and priest? Yeah. David also was a great king, but he also wore a linen ephod and was a priest. These things were foreshadowing Jesus' ministry. I wanted to read with you Psalm 110 as we move forward on this Palm Sunday. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. When you're thinking about this, so many 3,000 years in the rearview mirror, we can clearly see that the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, 
That's a tetratomagron in English. It is a word substituted for one word in Hebrew. Yahweh. It says that Yahweh said to my Lord, that with the big L and the lowercase o-r-d, is Adonai, that means owner and controller. Yahweh said to my owner and controller, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. From David's perspective, this is an interesting thing, and we can see it in the rearview mirror. It is clearly that God has placed some kind of regent over all of creation, and that God Himself would take that Lord, that regent, and make everything submissive to Him through His divine power. Uh, this far into Christian theology, you pro all, probably all have no problem seeing that. Yes? Yes, no problem seeing that. In David's day, he may not have quite understood what he was foreshadowing. His son was being installed as king. His son would rule and reign. And from that standpoint, he could say that the Lord was speaking to his son who had now become his Lord, his king. He was enthroned in Israel. He was just had his coronation. Sit, uh, sit at the side until the enemies are made a footstool for your feet. Did that happen in Solomon's life? Forty years of peace, no war. The golden age in Israel, if you go to any secular university, studying Western civilization will begin with a golden age in Israel and move forward and talk about the ways in which that benefited even the Western Hemisphere. This is an amazing thing. Even in Hammond, Louisiana, my very first Western Civ class started with Solomon, of all things. <clears throat> But Solomon foreshadowed something. A king who would step in with amazing wisdom, he would show amazing leadership, and he would bring relative peace to the entire <coughs> world. Well, this psalm is about Jesus, and it's about Solomon, but more accurately, Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. There would be one place on the globe where a scepter would be stretched out from. One place on the globe that would be a central seat of power for everything that would originate from heaven all the way down to the earth. And it would begin in a place called Zion. Zion is the mountain range. It's on the mountain range of Moriah. It's where the Temple Mount is. It's a euphemism for the whole city of Jerusalem. Did Jesus not, when He came, said that this Gospel would be preached, hear it, in Jerusalem, that's Zion, then where? Judea, that's the surrounding area, and then where? Samaria, that's yet further outside, and then where? The ends of the earth. Our King was put into His position as a, as a man... God Himself filled Him. He is God. He's the substance of God. But we're seeing a regent placed over all of the creation and His rule would begin from one place. And when you think of a king being coronated, you don't think about him lifted up on a cross, do you? Is it fair to say that God does things differently than we might? Yes. This psalm prophesies the most prolifically quoted psalm in all of the New Testament prophesies about a rule starting in Zion and going outward. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. 
He would have troops that are eager. He would have troops that were reborn, that were glorified, that were perpetually new. The king of the universe is bringing to him a ruling force for the entire planet. Not like Islam that rules by the sword, but like Jesus who rules by the sword of the Spirit. And the troops can be characterized as something. They are perpetually new. They are arrayed in majesty. They are uh, reborn. This was prophesying about this 1,000 years before Jesus came. And you are finding fulfillment in it every time you adorn a faithful smile on your face. Or you are clothed with joy during tribulation or difficulties. It shows ourselves to be a part of the king's army. There is a switch now in the fourth verse. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Without going through this whole teaching, there is a heavenly priesthood. When people think of the heavens, they have difficulty imagining everything that's in it. But if you just name some of the things that are in the Bible, there are cherubim in the heavens. There are seraphim in the heavens. There are elders in the heavens. There are living creatures in the heavens. There is a temple in the heavens. There is a mountain that the temple sits on in the heavens. We know these things because what was on earth was patterned after what was in the heavens. And Moses saw it. There is a priesthood in the heavens. A sanctuary inside the temple in the heavens. Jesus presented His blood there. When we think of heaven... We often don't think of that. But there was a rule there that God said He would invest in a king. That king would start His reign in Zion and that rule would go out over all of the earth. And then in the second part of this psalm, He begins saying, and He will be a priest forever in an order of Melchizedek. In other words, an order that will never perish. An order that doesn't have a beginning or an ending. An order that is eternal. So there would be no regime change. There would be no new priest voted into office. There would be no changing of the papacy. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of His wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead. This king that would be established as regent or ruler over the whole universe would be one that had actual authority. In fact, all authority in heaven and on earth would be given to him. Do you recognize those words? So that every power, every principality, whether it originated in heaven or originated on the earth, would be subject to this one. And crushing the rulers of the whole earth, he will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his hand. In Hebrew, this makes perfect sense. In English, this is kind of difficult. It seems like an abrupt change. What this phrase means in Hebrew is that while doing this awesome display of authority, he would be a man of peace with an eternal strength. This is how the Hebrews would describe that. He drinks gently by a stream. Not a man dripped in blood. Not a man with massive armies and tanks. A man that could be associated with gentleness and yet all the authority in the universe was subject to him. Does that sound like Jesus to you? Yes. When we think about our king, we need to know something. He is both a king and he's a priest. He is there to bring order, to set uh, 
to point out problem, to fix it, to take leadership, but he is also a priest to mediate, to help you, to show how. Any view of our Lord that makes him just a priest with no teeth, no authority, just uh, an advisor, is wrong. Any view of our king that makes him just a stern authority that is not comforting, that is not there to help mediate between God and man, lay his hand upon both shoulders and make peace between the two, is wrong. The Hebrew concept of the Messiah a thousand years before he came would be that he would be both. This week in history that we call Palm Sunday in reality is the 10th of Nisan, the beginning of the Passover week, this is the day that you would select your Passover <coughs> In a strange convergence of history, the day that would mark the selecting of a sacrificial offering that would cause death to pass you over was also the day that Israel received their king. The reason that we could say that the kingdom of God could be taken from one group because of their unbelief and handed to another. The reason that those kind of statements could be made is because they received Jesus as the king but then did not do what he said. Is that a problem unique only to a small group in Israel? Well, he must be both our king and our priest. I want to tell you this morning that our king will never rebuke you without giving you hope. Never. He never corrects without restoration. He never deals in religious bondage like guilt rather than freedom. That is not His medium. Our King never will have an outward appearance of godliness but with no real power. These are things that men do in His name. They rebuke but have no plan for restoration. They correct but they have no hope in their correction. They will dispense guilt as a means to control behavior. They will look godly, but have no power of God in it. These things cannot be associated with Jesus. In fact, they're more associated with this. Turn with me to Matthew 23, starting in verse 4. Tell me when you're there. There. I got disappointed that we didn't go cut uh, sago palm branches for you. I never understood that. I grew up in and out of church and spent some time in a little church where we did that on Palm Sunday. And I guess it's a neat tradition. But I held a palm branch and didn't receive him as king. I did it year after year after year. I didn't receive him as priest. It mostly just gave me something to sword fight with my friends in the park. You in Matthew 23? Yes. Get out of your mind that we are speaking about some evil group of people who are uh, beyond love and eternally associated with the word hypocrite. In fact, I think if you read the beginning of Matthew 23, you'll see that there were men who sat in Moses' seat and you were supposed to do what they said. That being said, these men needed to be corrected. When our king shows up into any setting, especially a religious setting, you need to understand, His way comes first. We do not get to minister any way that we want to. We have to minister in His likeness, in His stead, in His way. And when He began to teach them, they rejected God's purpose for their lives. This is what the Gospel of Luke says about this group of people. 
but in the fourth chapter, our 23rd chapter, fourth verse, they tie heavy loads, tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. It is so easy to focus on phylacteries, tassels, and synagogues here, but let's ignore the dress of the day and let's ask a question. Are there people here today that are interested in pointing out problems in other people's lives? You see, what they don't have right is, and you know where they went wrong? Where they went wrong is, you know what the problem with so-and-so is? But are unwilling to do anything to help that person fix the problem. Everything they do is done for men to see. I know there's nobody in here that has ever done a kind act in the hopes that someone else would notice that you did it, right? That was only a problem that related ancient Israel. So if you sent flowers to somebody and they didn't respond that they received them, did you find a way to bring it up in conversation? You know? <laughs> if your gift didn't have a label on it at a birthday party, right? The one that you brought, uh, it didn't have a name. Did you find a way to make sure that the host of the party knew that, that you brought a gift? I mean, you didn't show up without one. I mean, you wouldn't do that. You know how awkward some of those things are? We have all kind of reasons. This is the behavior he's talking about. We can demonize it. We, we can say, oh, these bad people. In fact, history's love to do that to the Jews. Those bad people. No, these people would pass most religious litmus tests. I mean, they're more educated than any of our pastors today. They're more holy than any Americans by a religious standard. And yet Jesus found fault. But he didn't find fault with them alone. He came in as a king that would restructure their society, their order, and their way of life. But he also came in as a priest. He would make a way for them to do the things that he was asking them to do. He would make peace between them and God, but they would not have it. Hebrews 12, turn there, Hebrews 12. Stay there when you're there. In Hebrews 12, pick up with me in the 22nd verse. But you have come to... That's the place where the king's scepter would be extended from. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Everything on earth had a mirror image in heaven. The city of the living God, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to the God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator, that's a word for priest, of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, than the blood of Abel. Have you ever thought about what that means? What did the blood of Abel say? What did it cry out from the ground concerning? What did it say? Guilt. Guilt. Does part of the ministry of Jesus 
<coughs> point out guilt and sin? Part of it does, of course. Of course it does. In fact, if you were living and you were standing there, and not everybody did, some sided with Jesus. That's something people miss when they read the Word. But if you were there and you thought, yeah, he probably should be crucified. The guy's stirring up trouble. And besides, if all of our leaders have agreed that he's bad, he probably is. Would that point out your guilt when he was crucified and it went dark and the earth shook and tombs broke open and many holy people came into the city to testify against you? Would it point out guilt? So it is like Abel's blood. It points out guilt. But why is it better? Because it doesn't stop there. The very same blood pays for your guilt. And Abel's could never do that. Right. This week they're going to receive him as king. There is a week coming when they will receive him as their priest yeah. and their king. question is, where are you with that process? Do we call him king but not accept his rule in our life? Yeah. Do we call him priest? But because he's not king first, it's difficult for his blood to attend atonement for our sin. In the Bible he's presented as both. Turn with me to 1 John. No, not 1 John. John, the first chapter. How about that? Yeah. I'd like to point out at this time, as you're evaluating this word for your life, because that's what I hope you're doing. I hope you're not just sitting there to endure a message. I hope your thought is not there evaluating my speaking abilities. I hope you're not out there with a pencil writing down if I make a mistake. I, I would hate to think that that occurs. Here's what you should be doing. I'm going to read it to you. It comes from 2 Corinthians 7.10. I know I told you to go somewhere else. Stay there. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. This scripture teaches us something. When the king shows up and says something that makes you sorrowful, something that makes you realize you could or should do better, that will yield for you salvation and it will leave a life of no regrets. But worldly sorrow, sorrow that does not originate from the work of the Holy Spirit, it does something else. It brings death. It will do you no good to find out that you are guilty if in that moment you don't also find out that there is a remedy. Yep. And it will do you no good to know that there is a remedy if you don't know that you're guilty, that you need it. This is what we preached about last week in poverty of spirit. My hope is that as you're sitting out here, you'll be evaluating your life. You'll be learning about Jesus, measuring your character against His. And then in areas where your character is not where it should be, salvation, redemption, in that area will occur and it will result in life. In areas where you know you're the, His Spirit testifies with your spirit, man, you're doing good with this. You bear fruit. But if what you do is sit out here and go, you know, I just feel bad about myself after hearing that. And you walk away with that. That came from the world, or you received it as the world would receive it. And that yields death. That doesn't help anybody. Have you met whole denominations of people that are guilty all of the time? Cry and beg Jesus for help, but they never receive the help? They'll pay for their loved ones to get out of fire. As if that would work, because what God wants is your 
copper change, right? They're like candles. Doing anything that they can do, but the guilt is always there. Our king did not want anybody to live in this situation where there is a form of godliness, but there is no power in it. In fact, he encounters something like this in Israel, and it makes him mad enough that he makes a whip. But are you in John 1? Yes. Look at the 16th verse for me. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. <laughs> From the fullness of God's unmerited favor, His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Is this your perspective? Do you feel blessed from one situation to the next? That out of God's unmerited favor in your life, everything is working out for your benefit. Everything is favoring you. And if that is how you feel, is it reflected in your... Is this how your neighbor would say you feel? What a good, good question is that. It's one thing to say, you know, Natalie, how do you feel about this? It's quite another to say, Brandon, you sit next to Natalie every day. How do you think she feels about it? How would y'all do with that? I realized partway through this week, in all of my rush to get things done, I was missing something that was important. I was missing the blessing in all of it. And the blessing is not when you look back and the work is done. The blessing is when you can have a good time while you're doing it, no matter what it is you do. Friends, if you have been walking with the Lord in His Spirit, you can be doing plumbing and have a good time. I promise that's the case. You can be in the midst of warfare, but perfectly at peace in your heart. This is the blessing of the kingdom. It means that nothing that comes your way overcomes you. Nothing. Not financial strength, not health problems, not some nasty relative. Don't act like you don't have them. That's right. <laughs> One blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I don't have time to teach this, but I do want to mention it to you. This is usually read as the law came through Moses, but Jesus gave us something different. No, it's to a Jew reading this, it's the best thing in our lives came from Moses, the law. And Jesus gave us something even better. He is the living, moving, breathing, acting, walking for us. It's not an either-or. It's not a, a, a compare and contrast. It is a, this is good, and this takes it to a whole new level of good. That changed the way you think about the law when you read it. Verse 18 is what I wanted to share with you, though. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only. When we say nobody has ever seen God, this is to visually perceive, but it's also to spiritually perceive, to comprehend. There is no place that you could get in the universe and stare back. Like, if you could stand on the moon and stare back at the earth, you could see most of the earth. You can't see it all. There's a backside to it. But you could see most of it. There is no vantage point anywhere in all of creation that you can get and see all of God. It can't be done. Because He's everywhere. It's like trying to comprehend something that has no borders. So he filled a man. He said, you want to know what I'm like? Look at this representative, this regent that i put over the whole planet. This is what I'm like. You know, I love those bracelets. What would Jesus do? Does anybody have one on in here? Yeah, what a fad that was. Huh? 
what would Jesus do? We don't have to ask what would Jesus do. Much better question is to say what did He do? He has already laid down His entire life, detail by detail, situation after situation, so that we know what His rule extending from Zion looks like. So that we know if God were standing right here, right now in a human being, if you could imagine that, how would He handle this situation? That's what Jesus' ministry is. Nobody's ever been able to see all of God. But the one who is at His side, the one and only, the one that is unique because He is the substance of God, He has made Him known. Not just seen with the eye, perceived, but knowable, interacting. You know, there used to be a commercial on TV. A lady said that she saw Elvis at the grocery store. And her husband was all excited. You know, I knew it was a conspiracy. Elvis wasn't really dead. And she was talking about Elvis Schwartz, her plumber. In <laughs> uh, my day, Bo Jackson was a big, big thing. He, he had run the fastest 40 anybody had ever run. He was 240 pounds when he did it, and he never really worked out. I mean, he was just a freak of nature. He had a, a, a Nike slogan uh, about uh, knowing Bo. The thing is, is you could know everything about his statistics, but never have met him personally. This is very much the way most people interact with Jesus, interact with the Father. This is not the point of the Gospel. The point of the Gospel is God that was always a little bit outside of your grasp, a little bit beyond your comprehension, suddenly becomes knowable, interactable. Somebody that you can have personal conversation with in the man and ministry of Jesus. Does that make sense to you? He would be the regent who would serve as your king, but also as your priest. He would be the one that scepter would extend to all nations, but his personal ministry, his priesthood, would extend into the recesses of your very life. So that Hebrews could say, he's able to sympathize with you in every way. You're tired? Well, he got tired. You're hungry? Well, he got hungry. Somebody you love died. It's got you down. He had people he loved that died. You could never say that outside of the ministry of Jesus. But in the ministry of Jesus, we see all of those things. Amen? Amen. Another way to say this is Jesus makes the Father knowable and understandable. This is why the New Testament makes the bold claim. No man comes to the Father except through the Son. It's not that you don't try. It's not that you don't think about it. It's that it is not possible to know, comprehend, grasp, interact with the Father except in the person of the Son. Does that make sense? Yes. Pharaoh has appointed Joseph Savior of the world. You cannot go talk to Pharaoh anymore. You must deal with Joseph during the famine. That foreshadowed the season that we're in now. Uh, our Heavenly Father has appointed one man to rule all the nations, Paul said to the Athenians in Acts 17. He's ruling now. Here we go. Let's go to Isaiah 56. What would Jesus do? There. Dustin's there. Where are the rest of them? There. there. Your pastor could use some encouragement this morning. Are you all upset? No. Are you learning? 
Are you bored? Is this? Is, is, I mean, should we just put this in a track and you'll have all you need? That's good. I can sit down and write the four spiritual laws for you, and then you would never need to come to church, right? Because you got there's only four. Four. No. Yeah. No. That's not what you want. In Isaiah 56, we see something expressed about the heart of God. Now, Isaiah talked about it as something that God, the uh, um, the unknowable creator of all things, not that you wouldn't try, but that you were not capable of fathoming all that He is. He talked about Him in that way. What we will see is that what Isaiah talked about with God was demonstrated in Jesus. You know, how many oceans are there? What do they say? Seven seas, right? Can you get anywhere and see all of the seven seas? No, but you could go to an aquarium and see representatives of all seven seas. You could see all the species. You could test the water from each one. All of those things. There was once a chapel in Italy. There's a bunch of chapels there, actually. And a guy painted a fresco on the ceiling. That's not what they're called on the ceiling, but... You know what I'm talking about. And it was breathtaking. The problem is, is the ceiling was not high enough so that you were not far enough from it to take it all in. So somebody got smart and put a mirror on the floor. So you could sit in one place and stare at the mirror and begin to take it in piece by piece. Because to stand up and try to take all of this ceiling and this room in from right here is impossible to do. That's just trying to comprehend God as love. But that mirror that is the perfect Reflection, the perfect image, as Hebrews said, of an invisible God. He's the visible image of the invisible God. It's what Jesus is like. But let's see what Isaiah said about it. Verse 3. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord... Listen to that word, bound. I'll, I'll explain it in a minute. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from His people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and give them joy in My house of prayer. When he says bound, when he says bind, this is a Hebrew word. It's lava. It means to those who intertwine themselves with Me. You can see why they said bind. It literally means to take two or three things and weave them together. <laughs> to those who are trying to interweave their lives with my life, I will do this. Do they have to be citizens in Israel? No. Do they have to be perfectly complete in every way so that they're a perfect specimen of what human beings are? No. No. All they have to do is want with all of their heart to be totally wrapped up in me. And then what's He going to do for them? Give them a name that is better than a memorial within the temple. 
Come on, was there a foreigner to Israel somewhere in Acts 10 who found such a memorial? What's his name? What's his name? Cornelius. Cornelius. Would you rather be Cornelius or have the word Cornelius chiseled in a brick somewhere in a building that's been knocked down? I would rather be Cornelius. That comes from wanting to have your entire life wrapped up in him. And to those people, what will he do? It says that he would give them Joel in my house of prayer. So there would be people who came from a distance, people outside of the geography of Jerusalem that are attracted to the king who is ruling in Jerusalem, the priest who has an indestructible life in Jerusalem. They would journey from afar to come and see, come be a part of what was going on at Zion. And if they wanted to wrap their lives up in Him completely, He would give them joy and His house, His temple, would be a house of prayer for them. What's the next line say? Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them. Our God looked after and went after those who were straying from their original calling. But He didn't just go after them. He went after still others. Would anybody like to theorize about who still others are? Well, you can raise your hand. You are them. The rule that began in Zion, the king who was coronated in Zion, the priest who gave his life in Zion, the rule went out from Zion, and you are being grafted to it now. Isaiah foreshadowed this in the year 740 B.C. This is hard for us to grasp. We're a young nation among the nations of the world. To us, a house that is old is how old? 20, 30 years? Other places in the world, their houses are older than our country is. I stood in a house in Germany with Matthew and Cody and Judah and Mike, and we prayed for revival in that house, and the house itself was older than our country. It was standing before George Washington was born. It's difficult for us to fathom 740 years before this man walked. A prophet is prophesying about the nature and call of God. And now someone would show up and would perfectly represent that. But it happened. Listen to what else happened. Turn with me to Isaiah 57. That's good. Verse 14. And it will be said, Build up, build up, prepare the road. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and the lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and a holy place. But also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the contrite. Our God is saying, 740 years before the ministry of Jesus, through the prophet Isaiah... I want you to build the roads. I want you to remove obstacles out of the way of the people. I want nothing to hinder them because I'm looking for the broken to 
Remember these words from a few weeks ago? The contrite, these are the shattered lives who have been completely deflated. I want to revive them. I want to breathe life into them. The call of the people of God was to prepare a way where anybody who wanted the king that was in Zion could get there and there would be an autobahn, a super highway called the highway of the Lord to get there. The focus, the purpose of what people call organized religion was never to support some kind of class of nobility called the priesthood. The point was to create a way where those who were broken, those who were contrite, could easily come into the presence of God. And He could begin to not only be their king, but their priest. He wanted to identify their weaknesses. He wanted to identify their deficits so that He could repair their lives. This is what He does. This is what the people who work for Him are supposed to do. And when I say that, please don't think about a clerical column. I'm not sure any of those people were. But you do. You do. This is our mission. We ask, what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Did He make it easier for people to come into the presence of God? Yes. Let's finish this. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry. For then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger. Yet he kept on in his willful ways. I have seen his ways. Hold it. The ministry of the king is to identify criminals. The ministry of the king is to look for problems in infrastructure. The ministry of the king is to govern, and govern with an iron fist. The ministry of the priest, however, is to take criminals and rehabilitate them. It is to take things that are broken and say, we can do some good here yet. Just put some cough on it. Right? Put some, put some wood putty in. Paint it. It'll get pretty again. It's not beyond restoration. It can be done. And Jesus was both. So He says, I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. The word heal in Hebrew does not mean simply to take an infirmity and make it go away. This is how we use it. We say, oh, has anybody here got a cold? Your mothers, brothers, sisters, dogs, monkeys, birds got a cold. We'll pray for you. Anybody got an unspoken? That way nobody can be held accountable. God can get no glory. It'll really just be a way to whine publicly. <laughs> Heal means to bring a sense of wholeness, a holistic health. It means to impart what the Hebrews call shalom. It means to take something that is broken like the whole world and make it work in its right order like He's doing with our lives. A king and a priest. This was the ministry of Jesus. He says, I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. I will guide Him, restore comfort to Him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord. I will heal them. 
Do you notice a theme in Isaiah? He always says good things to those who are close and good things to those who are far away. Sometimes he calls them still others. Sometimes he calls them foreigners. calls them all kind of things. A nation that memorized this book. A nation who is to typify what a nation should be like if God Himself built it from the ground up. This is what Israel was to be in the first century. How many of you have focused on the fact that Israel didn't get it all right? I know I have at times. But let me ask you, are you really any different? Are you not a people built by the Lord, ground up? Are you not a people who is supposed to be like a highway that others can see that runs to the Lord? I mean, how many people are doing what Peter said should be happening, happening to us? How many times are people going, Hey, Cody, tell me, what must I do to be saved? Peter said, just by working quietly, keeping, minding our own business, having a quiet and gentle spirit, we would need to be prepared to answer those who asked us. How many of us are living such powerful lives that everybody is coming and saying, oh, come on, Judah, tell me, tell me about Jesus. No, we have to train people to go out and to witness. Friends, if you have to go out to witness, maybe our lives are not already a witness. See, I think that your witness is not the words that are coming out of your mouth, but the actions that are flowing from our lives. i got to tell you some of the most fun, most powerful times I've had ever. I've been in park stores. I've been uh, getting a break alignment, in Missouri, uh, front end alignment in Missouri City. People go, hey, how'd you tear this truck up this bad? <laughs> so we like to go to Mexico. Why? Why would you do that? They're asking questions about the life that we have. We have church right there. We find out they'll call him king. But in that case, the priest didn't really apply. They didn't see any need. They were pretty good all by themselves. You need both, friends. You need both. Turn with me to John 2. <laughs> chapter of John, starting in verse 12, starting in verse 11, this, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. What an interesting thing to say to people who had already left everything to follow you, right? <laughs> Have you ever asked somebody if you love me? Well, you know I do. <laughs> our king, our king says about those who had already left everything to follow him, that after he did a miraculous sign, they put their faith in him. If you think that was a one-time thing, now move forward in the book of John and look at all of the times that he says, are you still so dull? Why do you have such little faith? This was an everyday testing of the relationship. Is he acting as king in your life? Is he acting as priest in your life? Is he only one and not the other? Because he must be both. After this, he went down to Kafar Nahum. Sounds different in Hebrew, doesn't it? With his mother and brothers and his disciples. They stayed there a few days. 
When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Some of you have heard this many times before, but it's worth saying again. Since the king would rule from Jerusalem, since the scepter would go out from Zion, since this was the epicenter of everything that God would do for mankind on the planet, it was the center of the universe, spiritually speaking. Anywhere else you were on the earth and in the creation, if you headed towards Jerusalem from any direction, you were headed up. Because it was the city where God would enthrone His King that would rule the entire planet and bring everything in subjection to the original authority of God. So whether you were north of Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem. If you were south of Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem. If you were west, you went up. Some have said, well, the city is elevated, Eric. That is why you go up. No, you could be on a mountain in Nepal, 15,000 feet above sea level, and you still go up to Jerusalem. You could be on a plane flying over Jerusalem and drop out of the sky. And from the Jewish perspective, you are going up to Jerusalem. It's called Aliyah, the going up. Anytime a Jew anywhere in the world goes to Jerusalem, they Aliyah. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. If you just put your finger there and stop <coughs> for a minute and said, what would Jesus do? If you glanced down at your little bracelet, right? that somebody gave you or you paid a dollar for at a concession stand somewhere and said, what would Jesus do? And you didn't have the written word here to show you what he already did do. Other oh, selling cattle, sheep, doves, they're exchanging some money. What would you think he would do? Ask whether they take Visa or MasterCard. Ask whether it's okay to make a purchase at the church bookstore while service is going on. What do you think he would do? If this doesn't surprise you, you're not being honest with yourself. Because the truth is, we wouldn't see a thing in the world wrong with it. We would go, well, the Older Testament said that they had to bring animals. It's kind of impractical to carry all of those animals with you a couple hundred miles on foot. So, I mean, there needs to be some exchange system. It's a service for the people, you know. It's all in the name of convenience, wouldn't we? <laughs> I mean, can't you give to ministries on their website now? It's a whole lot easier than going to church. Yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, you could mail a check in. I mean, this, this is our tithe. We'll just we'll mail it in case you know we we miss service the next I don't know fifty two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Anything that we could do just to make things easy. This is not the attitude in the church, is it? Jesus got so mad about this that he literally sat down and made an instrument to beat people with. Does that sound like anything else you have ever heard about Jesus? But he's both a priest and he's a king. Could you see a king that walked into an area where his dominion was not being recognized and it was his territory, who took an instrument of war and used it? 
Of course, any king. You don't think it's strange when David goes to war with Philistines. It's what they're supposed to do. What you find strange about this is who is he hitting? Who is he driving off? Those who would stand in his name and make his house something other than what it was supposed to be. Wow. What would Jesus do? Jesus would take a whip to many of our religious leaders. Why? Because they are making his house something that it was never intended to be. What was it intended to be? Something that paved a highway for people to be able to come who were deflated, who were broken into pieces. The eunuch who thought he had no hope for fruitfulness left in life. The foreigner who thought they would never make it in the kingdom of God because they were just too far gone. These people were supposed to be able to flock to God. And what our brothers who are very much like us did in the first century is they said, we can make some money off these people. What we could do is we could give them a rate of exchange that would be favorable to us. We could sell them the sheep that maybe we're not able to sell to the locals who have a choice. They had turned God's house into a den of thievery. Thievery how? By putting obstacles in the way of God's people. Wow. If Jesus came to make God more noble to us, if Jesus came so that we could see God in a new and more powerful way. One thing we need to know about him is that he hates a form of godliness that does nothing to liberate people, but instead binds them up with more baggage. Isn't that amazing? When the same week he was received as king, the same day that the nation came out and said that he was the son of David, the king of Israel. He takes a whip and goes to clean his father's house. Now, in actuality, there is a little more complication to this. What you're reading in John occurs in the first year of Jesus' ministry. How many years did he minister? Three and a half. This occurs uh, in the latter half of the first year. He does it again in Matthew 21 in the third year of his ministry. The books of Bible difficulties have a problem with this. They said, well, maybe John changed the order around because he wanted to emphasize this differently. Leviticus 14 said that when a man was a priest and he goes to a house that has something harmful, something infectious in it, like a spreading mildew, what he should do is, hear this word, order the house empty. He can go in then and expect and inspect that house. If it seems to be more than just surface deep, not a small problem, order the house scraped and cleaned. Wait seven days, a perfect period of time. Come back to the house and see whether or not the mildew has returned. And if it has returned, you order that house torn down one stone at a time until, hear this word, not one stone is left on another. 
never to be executed <coughs> again. Why did our king go twice? And on the triumphal entry week, he made a statement about the temple. I'm here as a king and I'm here as a priest. And my goal would be to scrape off of you the ugliness and restore you and make you beautiful. But this temple cannot be rehabilitated. The sickness is gone too deep. He actually quotes Jeremiah 7. And Jeremiah 7 says to God's people exactly these things. He alludes to Isaiah 56 in it. This is a method that Hebrew rabbis taught called stringing pearls. They would mention the first few words of a passage, knowing that the people had them memorized, and so it would call to mind the entire passage. And the last week he's on earth, the week of his triumphal procession, he's pronouncing judgment on a religious system that lays burdens upon them rather than removes burdens from them. Because his job was to fix what was broken. Do you remember that they had a discussion with him? Actually, let's finish reading this and then I'll show you that. Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. By the way, that's Psalm 69, the third most quoted psalm in all of the Bible. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. He actually made that statement in the first year of his ministry, but he made it in the last week of his ministry as well. And he made it not only about destroying an actual temple, but destroying his body. I want to tell you that the religious system that we all grew up in and the one that has been around as a counterfeit for real Christianity since the very beginning may be beyond rehabilitation. I mean, there's been great reformations and where did they turn out? But you know what is not beyond rehabilitation? The individual life. Because Jesus would order a building torn down for a spreading mildew that could not be scraped away. He would order, he would make a whip and drive people out of a trial. But in the end, he says, if you knock down this body that is a temple, I can rebuild it in three days. The resounding message for us as believers in this is that if we receive him as a king, if we receive, receive him as a priest, even if the entire religious structure all around the world began to crumble, he can still take your life even if it's all the way at the point of death, and rebuild it in only three days. And what would it be? It would be the last half of Psalm 110. It would be arrayed in majesty. It would be new from the womb of the dawn every day. It would be ready, eager, willing on the day of battle. It would be something that actually accomplished His will. But we continue to invest in buildings, and I'm doing it myself here, to house people. God is interested in investing in people, not buildings. They received him as king this week. How did that week end? In our redemption. <coughs> On Saturday, he enters Jerusalem. On Wednesday, 
walks outside of Jerusalem can be killed outside the city walls. On the first day of the week, Sunday, the tomb was already empty. He rebuilt his entire body. He redeemed it from <coughs> by the strength of his own right arm. In only three days, in three nights, just as the gospel said, where is the building that he spoke of? Non-existent. <coughs> stone is lying on another stone. He had it torn down. So what did we do? We built them everywhere else. People go to see their religious buildings. They go and make money in the name of Jesus. And they do nothing to alleviate the burdens <coughs> that are upon a man. They only make money on them. This is not Christianity. What Christianity is, is when you see your brother in a hole, you crawl down into the hole with him and help him out. Christianity is not walking looking the other way when you see mildew in someone's life. It's helping them get in there and scrub. Joellen said something to me the other day. She said the cleanup in these projects is always the worst part. That is always true, isn't it? There are sometimes you find out who your friends are. Moving day is always one of those. <laughs> I still would like a bumper sticker that says, Will your pastor help you move? <laughs> and the other is, after the party is over, when most have gone home, who stays and helps you play? You want to know what Jesus is like? He's the one that will stay after the wreck that you have made of your life. And he will rebuild it brick by brick. But do you know what was the only thing in his entire life that made him mad enough to make a weapon? Watching religious people and the way that they treated those who were trying to come. Well, that's worth thinking about, isn't it? There's another half of this message that I'm not going to teach now. I need to go to Mexico. But I want to tell you that in Joshua 10, there was a group of people. They actually came in in Joshua 9. They're called the Gibeonites. They don't deserve to be a part of the people of God, but they got in by a treaty. Do you know the story? They tricked Joshua, whose name is Yeshua, or Hoshea, which is the same as Yeshua. It all means the same thing. They tricked him. So he made a treaty with them. And then a false king of righteousness, a guy named Adonai Zedek, not Bezek, but Zedek, that means king of righteousness gets mad because of this treaty and he attacks the Gibeonites. Nobody's ever attacked you just because you had a favorable deal with Jesus, huh? Who do you think you are? This holy roller. You really think you're better than us, J.J.? Nobody's ever done that, huh? They're false kings of righteousness. Joshua comes to their aid because of the treaty. He marches all through the nighttime to get there. And when he does, and the sun is overhead, he commands the sun to stop over Gibeon during the day so that there's enough time for victory for these people. Then he does something that is just amazing. He takes those false kings 
He lays them down on the ground. He has every single Israelite, including the Gibeonites, come over and put their feet on the necks of those persecuted to show them that they have victory over their own. Do you see a message of Jesus in this? Remember on the triumphal procession? What did they cry out to Jesus? Hosanna. You know the first time that word appears in all of the Bible? Ali, Eloenu, Mirab, Hoshia, Lenu, the Gibeonites crying out to Joshua on the basis of a treaty, come save us, we're being attacked. And the way we would say that whole Hebrew phrase in English is Hosanna. Come save us now. We're in trouble. I want to give you one last message in this. The Gibeonites knew they were in trouble and that they did something. They let the king save them and the priest mediate. All too often we know that we're in trouble. We say, come save us now. But then we don't do what he tells us to do. He's not king and priest. There is no salvation. The same week that the people cried out, come save us, they were unwilling to receive the things that would save them. What is your life like? Do you know that you need to be saved? Are you asking for salvation and then not doing what he tells you? I had the opportunity to have a meeting the other night. I asked someone, what do you see my role is? To assist me in my spiritual walk, to teach me to help me, to prepare me, to okay, here are some things that I think would do that. You're wrong, I'm not doing those things. I could be offended by that, except that's exactly what we do with Jesus. Exactly. Save us, and then he shows us what would. Saints, I believe that what we have in this room is superstars. I believe that we have people that can have an amazing grasp on the word, but more importantly, can be daring enough to step out and do it. If you want to get close to the heart of God this week, you don't have to avoid fish or avoid meat meat fish. You don't have to put your whole life in mourning on Friday. Friday was unimportant anyway. Go find somebody that is having a hard time relating to Jesus and show them what he's like. Remove an obstacle from their life. Amen. Something that builds them up. Something that makes them believe that this community of believers worldwide has a spot in it for them. And it doesn't require them to be somebody else. That is what Jesus is like to say, what would Jesus do? That's exactly what he did. All of us are proof of it. None of us were born in the royal line. None of us sons of David. And yet all of us sit here included in his kingdom. Let's go find the rest of our brothers that want to be included. Let's go find the lame, the crippled, the beggars, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. We don't need people to be perfectly shallow, to be well grown We don't need perfect language. We don't need all of those things. We need people who know they need Jesus. 
and Jesus will show up in you. Just stand our feet for us. Amen. 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 